You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome, welcome to Fired Up right here. Yes, folks, it's Monday. That means it is Fired Up Radio right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. As always, I host the show each week, and I want to wish all of you a hearty welcome. So it's uh, been a really busy week over the last week. We have some big things to talk about in this show. So let's get right into it. All right. Uh, As always, let's start off with our COVID news. And uh, as of today, as of Monday, there are 30.2 million cases of COVID-19 reported in the U.S., with 549.3 thousand people having died from the disease. And uh, we have over 142.9 million doses of vaccine that have been administered into uh, arms of people here in the country. And of course, that includes both uh, single dose and people who have had both doses for the two dose vaccines. Uh, We've got some COVID news to go through uh, as we start off the show today. Um, First is, you know, as he mentioned in the campaign and in the in the election and since uh, President Biden had promised 100 million uh, vaccinations uh, done in his first 100 days. Well, he got that goal completed in uh, around uh, 60 days or a little bit less. And he's actually now turning around and saying he's going to double that so that he's going to move it out to 200 million doses uh, by the uh, end of May, I believe. So, you know, that's a significant milestone that we've achieved. Um, Another one is that uh, news came out just this week on uh, something called monoclonal antibodies. And for those of you that remember uh, when former President Trump uh, was uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 and and went to Walter Reed Hospital, uh, he spent four days in the hospital and came out. The uh, treatment that is now available uh, is the same treatment that he received. And according to information from the CDC and from the Biden COVID team, uh, there are more than 70 million doses of this mono- monoclonal antibody cocktail uh, available uh, that is going to start being distributed. And a couple of interesting points about this. Uh, As I said, this was the treatment that, you know, former President Trump received and, you know, apparently had some some marvelous uh, positive effect uh, on him. Uh, Also, that this vaccine uh, is going to be free. And if you are, you know, in the the qualifying groups to receive it, uh, it will not cost you or your insurance company anything. It is fully funded by the federal government. Now, a couple of differences is that unlike the vaccines that are being distributed around the country now, this is uh, what is known as an infusion in that it is delivered via an IV. Uh, It takes an hour for the infusion to be completed, and then you have a required 90-minute period where Uh, You are monitored at the the hospital or medical location where you get this to make sure there are no side effects. 
But the, the beauty of this treatment is, is that once you have been diagnosed with COVID-19, taking this treatment, this infusion, literally will stop the progression of the virus in your body. It prevents the virus from uh, attacking cells and replicating and, and basically uh, stops its progression. So, you know, it is another uh, arrow in the, the arsenal and looks like this will have, you know, some huge benefits. Uh, according to reports from the medical science teams, uh, it is between 70 and 85 percent effective at stopping the progression of COVID-19 for those that have been diagnosed. And it is 100 percent effective at preventing hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19 uh, again once you have this infusion. So that's a highly positive sign. You know, we're, we're interested uh, to see how this progresses. Uh, there have already been, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, patients who have received this uh, here in the U.S. And the, the prospects look very promising for it. Uh, so in, in addition to that, um, there is, and this just came out from an, an article from the 26th, uh, from USA Today, and this talked about an app that is now available uh, in New York State. And let me let me read uh, some of the article that was in USA Today. Uh, again, this is in the March 26th edition, and it reports that New York State has launched a digital Excelsior Pass that residents can use to prove they've been vaccinated or recently tested negative for the COVID-19 infection. You can use your phone's virtual wallet, and this works on Android or iOS phones, or a printout to a flash or QR code and otherwise show that you are safe when you want to go to a venue such as a concert or a stage performance. Uh, the initial adopters will be large venues. For example, Madison Square Garden in New York City will start using Excelsior Pass this coming week uh, with Albany's Times Union Center also in the pipeline. The passes will also be useful in smaller venues starting April 2nd, and they're already useful to increase the attendance size of catered events like weddings. Uh, state officials stressed that the Excelsior Pass was strictly voluntary for both businesses and the general public. They added that the IBM-powered apps don't store or track private health data and that a combination of blockchain's distributed ledger and encryption helps secure the data as well as ensure that information was verifiable. You shouldn't see people using fake passes to avoid getting vaccinations, in other words. Uh, you know, the article goes on to state that there will be some technical challenges, such as ensuring consistent use of the pass across venues and ensuring that they are recognized across states or whole, whole countries. While you don't strictly need a phone, the emphasis on QR codes could leave some people stranded if they don't have access to a computer with a printer. Uh, it's saying there also isn't a direct link between tickets and passes, so you can't automatically prove that you've been vaccinated when you buy seats. Uh, but, of course, there are some ethical questions that loom. No matter how secure and trustworthy Excelsior Pass may be, according to the article, 
Some people already bristle at the thought of having to load a vaccine passport app and divulge medical data just to attend an event. And while the passes are theoretically opt-in, they may become effectively mandatory if you want to participate in key aspects of public life while COVID-19 is still a threat. So, you know, this shows, um, you know, that there is progress being made on multiple fronts, both from a medical treatment standpoint with monoclonal antibodies and from a mechanism to help further open up, uh, you know, the public venues uh, using apps like the Excelsior Pass. So, you know, stay tuned. We will keep track of this and let you know how the developments uh, proceed. You know, so again, the the COVID news, you know, although the disease continues to progress, we continue to see a drop in the infection rates and correspondingly with the lag, a drop in the daily um, death rates and an increase in the number of vaccinations that are occurring. Uh, The Biden administration reports they're vaccinating upwards of two million people a day. So we're, we're making some progress and we, we, are, we are grateful for that, but that doesn't mean we can stop, you know, doing our part, you know, with masks and with social distancing and with proper hygiene uh, to help, you know, curb the spread of the virus. Uh, as I mentioned in last week's show, the, the advent of spring break down in Florida saw, you know, between 300 and 500,000 people descend on the Sunshine State to celebrate uh, spring break. So, you know, we're, we're looking to see if there are going to be corresponding COVID spikes in areas of the country as the, the party goers return back home. Uh, so we'll, we'll keep our eye out for that. So it, it's all in all, you know, overall positive news on the COVID front. Uh, however, it is still a pandemic. It is still dangerous. Uh, and people are still getting sick and dying from the disease. So please make sure you're doing your part and helping, you know, keep us safe. So moving along from that news, um, you know, I, I've mentioned several times uh, over the, the time we've been doing this show uh, about what goes into the preparation for it. And basically, it's, I spend, you know, each week between the shows uh, researching various news stories to, to find the three or four stories that I want to bring to Fired Up each week. Um, and, you know, in this past week was no exception. Uh, it turned out to be a battle of, you know, what is the bigger story, you know, that, that I want to focus on. And uh, Thursday delivered the winner. And it was on Thursday that the state of Georgia passed a law Uh, enacting a new slate of uh, voting laws. And uh, this came about after um, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed uh, SB202, which is a 98-page omnibus bill uh, on Thursday. So I wanted to spend uh, a good chunk of the show because I I had brought this up last week, uh, but now that there's more information out about the contents of this law, uh, wanted to uh, walk through it and kind of give you the high points. So there was an article uh, that came out of Georgia Public Broadcasting 
by Stephen Fowler, and this was on March 27th, so you can go to their website and see the article. And there's actually a link to a copy of the legislation itself, which you know is a 100-page document. Uh, but they, they produced a very good summary of what is in this bill, and I wanted to, you know, to walk you through it so that you have an understanding of what this, this law in Georgia means and to make you aware that you know, there are still 42 or 43 other states that have you know, pending legislation uh, on changes to voting operations in these states. Uh, so, you know, Georgia's law is essentially the first shot in what could become a, a pretty big battle over voting in this country uh, as we know it. Uh, so, you know, we, we need to be aware of this. We need to make sure that we understand uh, whichever state, whatever state you're living in, uh, you need to dig in and see what legislation's on the books, what bills are being considered that might impact your ability to vote in upcoming elections, particularly if you're in rural communities or, uh, you know, of course, uh, disenfranchised uh, communities or those that are typically um, disenfranchised uh, by legislation. Uh, because, as I said, this looks like it's going to be the first salvo in what's going to be a, a long and determined battle over voting rights in this country as we move toward the midterms in 2022 and the general election in 2024. So let me, let me go through the article from Georgia Public Broadcasting and you know, pick out the details uh, of the article. So, as I said, this came out on Thursday, and it, it, it starts off with the Election Integrity Act of 2021 was passed out of the Georgia legislature on a party-line vote, that is, Republicans only voted for it, and makes a number of controversial changes to how elections are run in the state, but also many adjustments welcomed by local elections officials who were overwhelmed by record turnout and unprecedented shift toward mail-in voting because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, because it's such a massive piece of legislation, according to the article, and opponents of the bill are focusing on different sections of the law, but there are many that voters might have missed. So, you know, the article talks about how Georgia voters will be impacted by most every change that is now in effect so it gives a, an extensive breakdown of how voters will be affected. So it, it leads off with changes to absentee voting. Uh, again, from the article, mail-in absentee voting will look the most different for voters, especially after 1.3 million people use that method in the November general election. Voters over 65 or with a disability in the military or who live overseas will still be able to apply once for a ballot and automatically receive one for the rest of an election cycle. But the earliest voters can request a mail-in ballot will be 11 weeks before an election instead of 180 days, which cuts that time in half. The final deadline to complete an application is moved earlier too. Instead of returning an application by Friday before Election Day, SB202 now backs it up to two Fridays before, 
Republican sponsors of the bill and local elections officials say this will cut down on the number of ballots rejected for coming in late because of the tight turnaround. Counties will also begin mailing out absentee ballots about three weeks later than before, starting four weeks before the election. Another change is that returning, I'm sorry, requesting and returning a ballot will also require new ID rules. Either your driver's license number, state ID number, or if you don't have those, a copy of acceptable voter ID. Uh, the, the law allows for applications to be turned online after the Secretary of State's office launched an online request portal using your driver's license number or state ID number ahead of November's general election. Poll workers will use that information plus your name, date of birth, and address to verify your identity and you will sign an oath swearing that everything is correct. This is a change from recent procedure that would check your signature with the application already on file. Um, it, the, the law will also do away with state and local governments uh, being allowed to send unsolicited applications, and third-party groups that send applications have new rules to follow, too. Their applications must be clearly marked as being not an official government publication that is not a ballot and must clearly state which group is sending the blank request. Plus, Third-party groups are only allowed to send applications to voters who have, all, who have not rather already requested or voted an absentee ballot, and they face a penalty for each duplicate sent. The article goes on to talk about some other changes to absentee uh, ballot process. Uh, the ballots themselves will look different. Uh, it will be printed on special security paper, and your precinct name will now be included along with precinct ID printed at the top. Uh, once you fill it out, uh, the, the uh, ballot will be placed in an envelope that will have uh, security features to block your signature, driver's license, or state ID number, or the last four digits of your social. Uh, and so the, the envelope will be designed so that sensitive information will be hidden once it's sealed. Military and overseas voters will have an additional set of absentee ballots mailed to them with their regular ballots, ranked choice instant runoff ballots. Georgia runoffs will now be four weeks long instead of nine weeks, but federal law requires ballots to those voters be sent out by 45 days before a federal election. So now these voters will be given these ranked choice ballots where they rank their choices for certain races in the event they head to a runoff and send them back with their primary or general election ballots. Uh, the law also changes uh, ballot drop-off boxes locations. Uh, secure absentee ballot drop boxes, which didn't exist a year ago, are now officially part of the state law, but not without some new changes. So in all 159 counties, there'll be a requirement to have at least one drop box uh, it caps the total number of boxes at one per 100,000 active voters or one for every early voting site, whichever is smaller, and moves them inside early voting sites instead of outside on government property. Additionally, drop boxes will only be accessible during early voting days and hours instead of 24 hours uh, a, a day, seven days a week. So the... 
the drop boxes will have some access restrictions, um, you know, and are, will be limited in number based on population. So there's a big change there. Uh, another change the bill made is changes to early voting. Uh, in this case, uh, it actually will expand early voting access for most counties, adding an additional mandatory Satur Saturday and formally codifying Sunday voting hours as optional. Counties can have early voting open as long as 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at a minimum. If you live in larger metropolitan county, you might not notice this change. For most other counties, you will have an extra weekend day and your weekend early voting hours will likely be longer. Uh, it also eliminates uh, the two uh, mobile voting buses that were set up in Fulton County uh, to help address the issue of long lines at polling places in that, in that county. Um, and also, the law now requires better notice of these changes uh, to locations or, or hours uh, by placing a four-foot by four-foot sign that shows where the new location is. Now, one rule of the new law that really generated some controversy was uh, a provision in the law that made it a misdemeanor for individuals to distribute water uh, or food to voters standing in line. And, you know, a lot of early news requests, or, or, I'm sorry, early news uh, outlets picked up on this and, you know, touted this as a, a big, huge, you know, hulking problem when they really didn't dig into the details of what the rule actually does. And the article uh, describes it at, like this. Another new rule that affects both in-person early voting and election day voting would prohibit anyone except poll workers from handing out water to voters in line and outlaw passing out food and water. And here is the, the point that didn't get picked up by a lot of the news outlets. Outlaw passing out food and water to voters within 150 feet of the building that serves as a poll, inside a polling place, or within 25 feet of any voter standing in line. So depending on the location, it is still possible for third party groups to have food and water available, and it is possible for the lines to extend beyond 150 feet. So that, that's markedly different from what the early news reports were saying, uh, and you know, it, it is a, a reasonable uh, compromise to you know, long lines and, and people having to stand in lines. So beyond 150 feet, uh, you know, food and water uh, could be passed out by uh, individuals, and poll workers can hand out you know, water to voters in line. Uh, some other things during early voting, uh, counties uh, are going to have some reporting requirements where they have to publicly report daily how many people have voted in person, how many absentee ballots have been issued, returned, accepted, and rejected. Early voting sites and times must be published publicly ahead of time. For runoffs, although things will be tighter, the law states that early voting should start quote, as soon as possible, close quote, after a primary or general election and require 
in-person early voting the Monday through Friday before the election. This means that counties may not be able to offer weekend early voting depending on how quickly it takes them to finish the first election and prepare for the second. Uh, there's some changes to vote counting. And, you know, in response to how long it, it, it took to count the, the votes in Georgia after the 2020 election, uh, there are some key changes here made with this law. Uh, one local change officials embrace is a section that allows them to begin processing but not tabulating absentee ballots starting two weeks before the election. And there's extra incentive to do so by way of a new requirement that counties count all of the ballots nonstop as soon as the polls close and finish by 5 p.m. the next day or potentially face investigation. Plus, poll local officials are required to post and report total number of ballots cast on election day during early voting via absentee voting and provisional ballots all by 10 p.m. on election night, essentially providing the public with a denominator to understand the total possible votes out there as results trickle in. Uh, also, with regard to provisional ballots, out-of-precinct provisional ballots will not count anymore unless cast after 5 p.m. and a voter signs a statement saying they could not make it to their home precinct in time. So, you know, some, some significant change there. Uh, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the, the state, county, and local uh, polling places to get all their counting done and to get you know, reports uh, tabulated and processed through. Um, some other things in the bill, and these are changes in you know, affecting local election offices. And, and again, from the article, one change buried in the bill would give county elections officials greater flexibility with voting equipment for smaller, lower turnout races. You know, essentially, um, Previous law required one ballot marking device per every 250 active voters. Uh, statewide general elections would still require that ratio, but any other uh, election would be subject to the local elections officials' discretion based on expected turnout, the type of election, number of people that have already voted, and more. Uh, they will also, counties will also have to provide better notice of public logic and accuracy testing of voting machines and equipment. Uh, and, you know, they will have to calibrate every piece of technology uh, used in the election. The dates and times should be on the county's website if they have one, a local newspaper, and in a prominent place within the county. Plus, the Secretary of State's office must keep a master list uh, of the, the testing and make it public. And another change that was proposed last year and is now law would require large polling places with long lines to take action if wait times surpass an hour at certain times during the day. Those massive polls with more than 2,000 voters and wait times longer than an hour would have to hire more staff, add more workers, or split up the precinct after that election. More than 1,500 of Georgia's precincts have over 2,000 voters. And another point um, was around the subject of poll watchers. After the 2020 election cycle saw an influx of partisan poll watchers 
who sometimes interfered with vote counting, the GOP-backed bill requires poll watchers be trained before allowing them to work and gives local officials the authority to set where those watchers can observe from. Um, poll, walker, poll workers also in short supply for the June 2020 primary because of the pandemic, they may now serve in adjoining counties. Uh, some other changes uh, involving this, the, the state election board, um, the secretary of state, and this, this did make the news uh, with you know, the current Georgia secretary of state, Mr. Raffensperger, uh, and you know, his adventure with the Trump administration uh, the Secretary of State will no longer chair the state election board, becoming instead a non-voting ex officio member. Uh, the new chair would be nonpartisan, but appointed by a majority of the State House and Senate. The chair would not be allowed to have been a candidate, participate in a political party organization, or campaign or made campaign contributions for two years prior to being appointed. Uh, and, and that's, of course, in direct response to the situation uh, with the uh, Georgia governor, among others, uh, who were actually uh, candidates as well as supervising the election they were a participant in. Um, the law also says the governor should appoint someone if the position becomes vacant when lawmakers are not in session. Uh, there were changes made to the election board's power, uh, more power to intervene in county elections uh, or boards uh, that are deemed underperforming. Uh, in addition to the legislature appointed chair, the five-member board is made up of one member appointed by the House, one appointed by the Senate, and one each picked by the Democratic and Republican state parties. Uh, the state election board, county commissioners, and a certain number of state, House, and Senate members that represent a county could request an independent group to conduct a performance review of their appointed election boards or probate judge that supervises elections, defined in Georgia law as the, quote, superintendent. SB 202 would allow the state election board to suspend the multi-person elections board or probate judge and replace them with a single individual for at least nine months. Some, some other changes that came out uh, a little bit more intangible, which would impact uh, how voters in Georgia would vote. Uh, the law states the attorney general's office will have the authority to set up a hotline for people to file complaints about voter intimidation and, quote, illegal election activities, close quote, including anonymous tips. Uh, that section also says the AG's office shall have the authority to review and uh, start investigations uh, as, as expeditious, expeditiously as possible uh, where complaints are received. The State Election Board and Secretary of State's office would also be prohibited from entering into any settlement agreements for election lawsuits without notifying lawmakers first. Uh, in addition to shortening the runoff period, SB 202 would also end what are so-called jungle primary special elections requiring a special primary before a special election. And also uh, in, in this law, it talks about because of delays in the 2020 census, the law will also allow some of the municipal boundary line withdraw, redrawing uh, 
efforts to wait until after upcoming elections. So a, a, a sweeping bill uh, that went through Georgia uh, with actually some, some positive things. Uh, it, it, it doubles the, the number of early voting or weekend voting days and expands uh, the hours uh, for Sunday voting uh, as an option. Um, a, a lot of the changes, though, reflect uh, what was obviously points of contention with the 2020 Georgia election and the, the runoffs uh, that occurred in January of this year. Uh, and we will see as the law is enacted and goes into effect exactly you know, what impact that's going to have in upcoming elections. This new law uh, is going to create some, some conflict. Uh, there have already been lawsuits filed uh, against this, this new law uh, pretty much the moment it was signed. And um, there have been some complaints and some, some controversy uh, where how the bill was actually processed through the House and the Senate and to the governor in one day. Uh, and you know, not only what was included in the bill, but also, uh, again, this is the first uh, state uh, to pass sweeping elections pa um, packages, but it's not the only one. In Iowa, Republicans passed a law that tightens the receipt window for absentee ballots, cuts the early in-person voting period from 29 days down to 20, and shaves off an hour of in-person voting on Election Day. Uh, that law was signed by uh, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds uh, earlier uh, this month. Uh, in, in Iowa, Representative Nakima Williams, who chairs the state Democratic Party, called the law flagrantly racist and a slap in, um, I'm sorry, Nakima Williams, this is uh, regarding Georgia, not Iowa, uh, a slap in the face to Georgia's civil rights legacy. The governor and the GOP are now trying to outright silence Georgia voters by making it harder to cast a ballot and letting partisan actors take over local elections. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the law is, without con is not without controversy. Uh, and there are lawsuits already uh, filed with regard to this law and can probably expect more. And as I said, you know, it, it, it is signaling the beginning of what is going to be a, an extensive battle in this country over voting rights and voter access, uh, voter suppression and, and other you know, vote related elements uh, as we go forward. So, you know, it, it, it's it's going to be some very heated and contested political battles coming up. And, you know, it, it ties in with uh, something that you know we, we are seeing going on at, at the federal level with the House of Representatives and the Senate and the White House uh, in the battle over the filibuster. And you know after this quick break, we're going to come back and talk about what is going on with the filibuster and what uh, it means in terms of getting the Biden administration's agenda uh, going forward. So we'll be right back after this very quick break. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. 
Uh, this is Steve, and we'll be right back after the break. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. And welcome back. Welcome back to Fired Up as we continue our discussion on you know some of the heavy issues that came out of the news last week. Uh, unless you've been off the planet, you've heard all of the debate and discussion going on on what should become of the filibuster in the Senate. Uh, I talked about this in last week's show, uh, talking about what the filibuster is and what it would do. And, and you know, just to, to briefly recap, uh, the filibuster is a rule in the Senate rules. It's not a law. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, it is a rule uh, as part of how the Senate operates that says if a, if a senator or a representative in the House, for that matter, objects to a bill, uh, they can uh, filibuster that bill by informing the chair of the, of the body. And then, uh, according to the rule, uh, they would stand up and hold the floor, uh, usually by talking and continuing to talk uh, until the opposing party could raise the 60 votes necessary to close debate and move the measure to the floor for a vote. Uh, in recent years, the filibuster went from being something where a senator needed to stand on the floor and, and hold the floor uh, to where all they need to do is to uh, send an email or a communication to the chair indicating that they, they are filibustering this bill uh, with no real further action required. And the, the filibuster has returned to center stage uh, with the, the current situation in the Senate in particular because the House is split 50-50 uh, and Democrat control resides in the president of the Senate, which is Vice President Harris. Uh, there are a, a number of bills that the Democratic administration wants to push forward and, and, and laws that they want to get passed, that the Republicans have promised that they will invoke the filibuster to block, uh, stall, or you know prevent those bills from coming to a floor vote. Uh, one of them, and perhaps the, the, the lightning rod for this discussion uh, on the filibuster, is a bill uh, that came out of the House of Representatives called H.R. 1, which is a a wide-sweeping uh, act to uh, provide uh, such things as automatic voter registration, restore uh, segments of the Voting Rights Act, which were were cut out by the Supreme Court 
in 2017, I believe, um, protect against purges uh, and, and inhibit the gerrymandering of congressional districts. Um, it, it passed through the House uh, with you know, Democratic support, uh, but in the Senate, it would require, under the current rules, it would require a 60-vote majority to pass legislation. Now, the again, the Senate is 50-50, and the, the likelihood of getting you know, 10 Republicans to join with 50 uh, Democrat senators to pass legislation is remote. Uh, when you add into that, there are two Democratic sen- senators who are opposed to eliminating the filibuster uh, and, you know, are, are not fully on board with other changes that have been proposed to the filibuster. And those are Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema and West Virginia Senator uh, Joe Manchin. And, you know, Sinema uh, and Manchin have been talked about uh, a lot over the last uh, few weeks or, or a month or more. Uh, because of their objection to uh, substantial changes or elimination of the filibuster. Uh, there's been a lot of, of talk in the media uh, regarding Senator Joe Manchin, uh, but a lot less uh, with regard to Senator Kristen Sinema. Uh, there was, and, and I, I found an article that came out of the uh, Arizona Republic newspaper and this was from earlier this past week, and the article reads, uh, Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema may soon have to decide if she will be a champion for Arizona voters and those across the nation, or a shill for an outdated obstructionist Senate rule. There's a bill in the House, H.R. 1, which may be the last best chance to stop the widespread voter suppression efforts going on in states with Republican-controlled legislatures like Arizona. The bill, called the For the People Act, would do things like provide automatic voter registration, restore the Voting Rights Act, protect against purges, as, as is happening in Arizona, and inhibit gerrymandering uh, of congressional districts. It has a decent chance to make it through the House, and in fact, it already has. The Senate is another story. The filibuster rule requires a 60-vote majority to pass legislation. Cinema, along with West Virginia's Joe Manchin, are the most talked about Democrats in the Senate uh, who support the filibuster rule. Others are less vehement in their support. Cinema recently released a statement saying, I have long said that I oppose eliminating the filibuster for votes on legislation. Retaining a legislative filibuster is not meant to impede the things we want to get done. Rather, it's meant to protect what the Senate was designed to be. Going on and, and quoting Cinema uh, here, I believe the Senate has a responsibility to put politics aside and fully consider, debate, and reach compromise on legislative issues that will affect all Americans. Therefore, I support the 60-vote threshold for all Senate actions. Debate on bills should be a bipartisan process that takes into account the views of all Americans, not just those of one political party. All right, let me stop right there. Uh, That statement from, you know, a senator, uh, the senator from Arizona, uh, is a, a naive, 
uh, rose-colored glasses-looking view of what the Senate as it currently exists is. Uh, you need only look back over the last 15 years to see what the Senate has become. It has become a deeply divided body. It has become a body where the minority party uh, has used the filibuster to obstruct, to block, to slow down, to slow walk. Uh, necessary legislation and laws that need to be passed in this country. Uh, and it is 180 degrees opposite of what Senator Sinema is saying in her statement. Uh, the, the retaining the filibuster is not meant to impede the things we want to get done, but that's in exactly what the political parties, notably the Republican Party over the last 15 years, has done. Uh, the going on, she says the Senate has a responsibility to put politics aside and fully consider debate and reach compromise on legislative issues that will affect all Americans. That also is something that has not been done in the Senate over the last 15 years, uh, primarily due to the, the leadership of uh, then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, now Minority Leader. Uh, and other members of the Republican Senate party. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it is beyond comprehension as to why uh, this senator, along with Senator Manchin, uh, are fighting with their own party against a rule that uh, clearly uh, would help get much-needed uh, laws enacted in this country. Um, you know, there, there are a, a ton of things. When the, the prior uh, congressional session ended, there were, there were some 200 and something bills that had been voted and passed by the House that were tabled by, again, the then Majority Leader McConnell uh, and were allowed to die at the conclusion of the 116th Congress. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the idea that a, a Democrat senator would stand by a rule that was initially developed as a method of discriminating against African Americans and people of color uh, after the, the Civil War and continued through the Jim Crow era and into the Southern strategy era, and now up to the modern era as a method of blocking and obstructing you know, necessary legislation that protects not just people of color in this, this country, but all voters. These voter restrictions that we talked about in the last segment, they aren't gonna just impact you know, uh, black people and Latino and Asian and, and, and other disenfranchised minorities. Uh, when you look at those voting lines, uh, if you go back and look at the voting lines in Georgia, there weren't just black people in those lines. Uh, there were people of all races in those lines. Everyone was impacted by the problems that were, were held in Georgia and in other states where voter suppression and other restrictive voting tactics were in place. Um, you know, this, this filibuster rule needs... You know, an exception, an exception was made in 2017 
when the Republican-controlled Senate lowered the threshold for confirming nominees to the Supreme Court and the federal bench to 51 votes. Uh, and that was purely in benefit to their agenda at loading up the federal judiciary with conservative right-wing justices, uh, which you know they, they appointed you know more than 200 at the federal level, and you know gave the Supreme Court a 6-3 conservative uh, majority. Um, and another exception could be created uh, by the Senate for voting rights. Remember. The filibuster is not a law. It is a rule. It is in the package of Senate rules on how the Senate does business. Um, but that would, you know, making those changes would require that both Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin, who we're going to talk about in a second, uh, would uh, have to turn and support that. So, you know, the, the, the call to action on this, and, and this will apply to both of these senators, is that it, you know for democratic voters they need to reach out to their party to their their democratic senators and tell them in no uncertain terms they need to find a way to get mansion and uh cinema on board to some type of reform for the filibuster so that this necessary legislation can can go through i mean we're talking about things like you know common sense uh gun reforms uh, you know, all kinds of issues that are out there uh, that are just languishing because the, the Senate is using the filibuster rule to obstruct, slow down, and, and otherwise stifle attempts to get this needed legislation through. And, you know, as I said, there have been a lot of talking points and, and comments made about Senator Joe Manchin. He is the most visible of the two of them. But, you know, he, too, uh, states that, and, and this is from uh, an article um, on the 28th from Business Insider. And in this article, it talks about how uh, Senator Manchin said that he remains opposed to dumping the filibuster, a Senate rule that progressives want removed to overcome GOP opposition and enact sweeping reforms on gun control laws and voting rights. Uh, the senator from West Virginia, uh, a Republican-leaning state, has put a has put a push, has put a break on a push by some Democrats to use the party's control of Congress to enact major reforms and sidestep GOP opposition and spoiling tactics. Uh, the senator is quoted as saying, "Pushing through legislation of this magnitude on a partisan basis may garner short-term benefits." but will inevitably only exacerbate the distrust that millions of Americans harbor against the U.S. government. And he made that statement on Friday. Um, he also opposed signal opposition to suspending the rules for certain bills, as other Democrats have suggested. Uh, his logic is, you're either committed or not. Um, you know, it, it, it just, again shows a, a level of tone deafness uh, by these two senators and a, a trend that we have seen in a broader sense with both Democrat and Republican senators and, and Congress people uh, and state elected officials at essentially ignoring the will of the people. These, these uh, issues, whether it's uh, voting reform, 
whether it's common sense uh, gun reforms, whether, you know, it's, you know, all of these have widespread and broad popular support among the American people, Democrat and Republican. Uh, it's, it's seldom that you hear of bills that have 70 and 80 percent approval ratings by, you know, the, the American public. And, and again, this is across the, the political spectrum. This is not, you know, 80 percent of Republicans and 70 percent of Democrats. This is of everybody. So, the, you know, the point becomes is if, if we elected these officials to go to Washington and do our work there, why do they not respond to our desires and, and our demands? Uh, how do they look at a, a 70% uh, positive rating from the American public and still vote in opposition to that mandate? You know, and in, 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 in all things, as I said, the Democrats, you know, for you Democrats out there, you need to find, uh, communicate with your elected officials. They need to find a way to get Mansion and Cinema on board with a common sense proposal for dealing with the filibuster so that that can move forward. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see the gridlock and, you know, stalling and game playing that has plagued, you know, our, our elected officials, again, for the last, you know, 15 years uh, at, at least. So, you know, there's our, there's our call to action on that level. And it, it ties in to, to what I, I talked about last week, and that is the need for coalescence of a viable third party uh, particularly at the federal level, but also definitely at the state levels as well. And as I said last week, it, we're not talking about putting together 50, you know, independent or 50 third party senators and 218, you know, third party uh, people in the House. But, you know, if for, for, you know, moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans, uh, progressives and independent in the middle, uh, it, it is definitely a task that needs to be taken up with the objective of perhaps getting, uh, you know, 12 or 14 or 15 third party senators and, you know, maybe 30 or 40 third party members of the House of Representatives and corresponding amounts in the state and local uh, legislatures as well. What this would do is this would break this 50-50 logjam that we have in the Senate and this razor-thin majority that flip-flops between the parties uh, in election cycles in the House by putting a block of votes that is neither Democrat nor Republican, but that would, would make it necessary for either of the two major parties to deal with this independent, this third party, which, you know, should be representative of the, the, the center core of America, which is progressive and, and moderate. Uh, it, it is not the extreme left. It is not the extreme right. The vast overwhelming majority of people in this country 
uh, don't fall into those extreme categories. They're in the middle and they need to be represented. And a viable and effective third party is how that could be manifest in the House and Senate in Washington, D.C. So, you know, for, for you progressives out there, for you independents out there, and for you, your, you Republicans that are more progressive, Democrats that are more progressive, more moderate, um, you need to be identifying candidates that you can elevate up through the state ranks and at the federal level uh, to, to build out this third party that would help make our government what it is supposed to be, and that is a representative government of the American people. Because right now, the people in the middle don't have a voice. They aren't being heard. The 70% who you know, are, are in favor of these you know, sweeping uh, changes get ignored over and over and over again. And it's up to us to let our elected officials know that that's going to stop. So with that being said, our call to action is clear. Uh, communicate with your, your, your senators regarding Senators Manchin and Sinema. Uh, you know, start to identify those, those candidates out there who you know, are, may uh, represent a more pro- progressive viewpoint. And let's get these people in office. Let's get this change happening. It's going to take a few election cycles, as I said last week, but it's a process we need to get underway. So, um, you know, that, that's going to that's gonna be our call to action for this week. As always, please make sure that you're staying safe from COVID. Wear your mask when you're out in public. Stay socially distant. Uh, keep up with the hygiene. Get your vaccine when, you know, your turn comes up. This is the way that we are going to beat this pandemic. All right. So everybody out there, please do what you can to stay safe. Thank you all for listening. If you have thoughts or comments, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your points and we'll gladly bring them up on the show going forward. So with that being said, take care, everybody. And I will talk to you again in seven days. Wherever you stand, calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation that can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we 